to quote George Bush, just send your cash. I'll just take the cash. <laughs> The Social Psycho Confabulation with Ben and Mr. A. All right. Well, good morning. I just tried to spill coffee on my computer. Excellent. I was going to spill some tea on your other computer because that's the one I'm using. <laughs> They're all my computers. <laughs> I have hundreds of computers. <laughs> Basically, you're just a business and you own it. <laughs> And I just work here. Look, even if I want to tilt it up so you can see me in the center, it's like, here, just have every item in my house in display. Yeah, I don't know why you have a problem with this. This is, I yes, I pay for this computer, and I pay oh, to see oh, all the angles. <laughs> yes. yes, sir. You're, you're right. I should just get back to work. <laughs> I was going to do a PowerPoint about it and then present it later so oh. that maybe I could get a different computer. But I just wanted to lay out the reasoning. Yeah, we don't we don't let you make decisions here. We you have to yeah. We're gonna need to see a PowerPoint before we even begin to discuss anything. Yeah, before we even schedule a meeting here. to discuss. It's two employees: cashier and CEO. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know how big do you think the average discrepancy in a Fortune 500 company? It, the discrepancy is between. The CEO pay and the lowest paid employee, and the answer is in the format of a multiple. Like how how many times do you think the CEO makes versus the lowest level employee of the Fortune 500 companies? Yeah, like do you think it's like ten times more or hundred? The times average more? Dis- the average discrepancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I think. If it's straightforward and the math is sound, like they did the, they figured it right. I'm saying, well, here's the problem. I have, I can come up with two numbers in my mind, but I don't know math. So I don't, I'm like, well, what, how many times is that versus, I don't know, you know, like, and we're talking salary or all that other stuff CEOs get. Cause can't those people make like ungodly amounts of money based on all the stuff that they get as compensation? Yeah, well, so I think it would be total compensation because actually most CEO pay is in the form of equity, especially in the Fortune 500 companies. Okay, so I'm going to say... Oh, my God. I'm going to say 150 times. Yeah, so this article, this is Forbes reporting 380 to 1 spread between CEO and average worker pay among the S&P 500. So there it is, 380. Name name a Fortune 500 company like that this might apply to. I just want to... Google, I'm... Microsoft, Amazon. Okay. Are they mostly tech companies? Facebook, How many? Meta. Oh, no. No. Like, uh, actually, a lot of them are not tech companies. So here's some other... Fortune 500 companies that aren't tech companies, just so people are aware that a lot of them are not technology companies. Uh, ExxonMobil, gas. Right. Berkshire Hathaway, investment. CVS Health, General Motors, AT&T, Johnson & Johnson, Lockheed Martin. McKesson. Boeing, McKesson, yeah. 
Goldman Sachs, United Health Group. So there's a lot of, yeah, a bunch of different ones. Okay. Let me just read you. I'm just going to, I'm being, I'm looking things up. And as I just Google them, I'm being surprised. So I'm just going to say the surprising facts that I'm finding. And then we can talk about it because I'm not, I don't have a narrative for it yet. I'm just like, wait, wait, what? This what? is the best kind of show. We're not even, we're Jeez. not narrativizing things. We're just telling you the facts. We're just telling you how it is. Okay, people. Okay. So how many employees does Apple have? A hundred and fifty-four thousand. Okay. Which is a lot. That is a staggering number of employees just on the face of it. These tech companies, they have a lot of employees. It's unbelievable, many, really. It's a lot of people. Now, here's a couple another fact or question and answer. How many employees does Walmart have? Two million three hundred thousand. So they employ a freaking country. Wow. That's small like, country. Yeah. How many people live in France? For God's sakes. Okay. It's like 16 times as many employees as Apple. Right. First of all, crazy. Go go Walmart. Um, so I looked up the CEO of Walmart's salary. Guess what that is? Ooh, okay. Annually, I think in total pay. So I'm including his equity pay. I'm like kind of mind boggled right now because I'm like, is Walmart like a thousand times more successful than Apple? And I just don't know that. I need to figure it But go on, go on. So guess, yeah, guess yeah. the salary. I think, let me see. I think uh, 50 million. Let's say 50 million. Okay. I'm really surprised that you went that high, but you're right. No, you're not right. Sorry. It's 24,600,000. Oh, okay. But the guy's making 50 million a year. I mean, you know that that's I'm just like, the salary. It's or, as no, high that's, as possible. No, okay. <laughs> they are, I know. They are saying that this Still. is the uh, total compensation. So I'm sure that includes some other. But I mean, come on. 24 million a year. I will never yeah. make that much money in my lifetime, probably. It's a lot of money. That's incredible. Okay. A year, though. Yeah. Every year that goes by. Right, right. It all goes to one he's, guy. He's, yeah. Every two years of his yeah. life that he lives is another $50 million. Right. So insane. I think what they're do a family do company literally, too, though. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, the Walton family. My, I have family right. that like, knows them. And stuff, so I, you know, I only so. make that point because it's like the family has been making this money. It's all going to the same. It's not like, oh, the CEO is only there for a couple of years. It's like they've been in charge for a long ass time. Like the whole company has been run by this one family. Yeah, it's not that that's a bad thing, but it's just like I don't it's know. crazy it's when you think about the money they're making. It's like that many in dollars year over year all going to the same family it's like to the same little on? family let alone just one measly ceo who's not even related right. to the family because the whole family works there i think there's like multiple people who are i on think the they're like board probably board members and yeah, stuff now yeah. yeah but i just can't i mean literally though what do you do like if i got 50 million dollars one time I think if I got $50 million over my lifetime spread out, I wouldn't know what to do with that kind of cash. Yeah, like if you won the lottery or something. Yeah, so if I had $50 million, I would buy everything that I need that I can't afford now. Fix the truck, fix this, fix that, move into a nicer spot that's not dilapidated. Fix all the family finances, and by that point, how much do I have left? I think I, st I think I still have like forty nine million dollars left. <laughs> you haven't even spent one of the million. I haven't yet. spent. I haven't spent a fiftieth of it, and I'm not going to do that fifty more times. 
And then, but in two years, I'll be double this rich. And in two more years, which is not that long. I just cannot, I just cannot imagine, because I wouldn't know what to, you can't put $50 million in the bank. You just can't do that. I mean, you can do it, but it's like literally putting all your eggs in one basket and then throwing it off a plane, you know, like you can't just store your money that way. So you literally just have to like start consuming and gobbling up assets. And I I don't know what you do at that point. What do you mean you can't just put in the bank? I mean, I'm sure people do put their kind of money in the bank. I mean, the they interest, might. just the interest on that, like interest rates are rising now. So you can get up to a 4% interest it, well, rate Well, I think it's my point is that it's not insured. Oh, it's only insured up to, yeah, uh, The FDIC only insures it to like 250 grand. So it's right, like you've okay. got to, you cannot put it in there. If that's your, if you, I mean, you can, if you got every two years you're getting $50 million, sure, put it in there. Put, put $50 million under your mattress, put $50 million in your mailbox, put $50 million in the bank. Put fifty million dollars in land. Buy a fifty million dollar company. Tell them don't change a thing. Maybe I mean, that's you know, what you just... need to do. You need to take two hundred fifty thousand dollars and put it in all these different bank accounts. <laughs> you know, like... yeah. yeah, people I don't do. Know. Yeah, they do split all their stuff up like that. But anyways, so I'm just I'm just staggered by this fact. Now, CEO of Apple, Tim Cook. This is just an article I found. Will receive a pay cut in 2023. Oh no, to 49 million. So he's also making. Oh, oh, he's making it 50 million a year. The CEO of uh, Apple, and he doesn't even employ that many people comparatively. Hmm. Yeah, he took a pay cut to 50 million people. Okay, so he now also you took now, a pay cut though. I okay, this is like well, unrelated, nice but he was one of the few CEOs. There's been a lot of tech layoffs recently. And Apple was one of the few companies that didn't lay off people. And instead, Tim Cook took a huge pay cut and didn't lay off people. So anyway, that's interesting. But apparently now he's making like $50 million, which is like even more than the CEO of Walmart's making, even though they're more profitable so or making more money. Wow. In 2022, the, so the pay cut was that. So in 2022, he was still, it was pre-pay cut. He mm-hmm. made just under $83 million. In stock awards, twelve million in incentives and three million in salary. That's chump change. Honestly, I think he deserves more. Than eighty three million dollars? Yeah. I think I just can't I I I can't even I can't even pretend. I can't imagine. That that the three reasonable. I take the three million, you know. <laughs> so the <clears throat> the eighty three million in stock awards, that's kind of an interesting thing because it's kind of like binds it's like you that kind of ties that money up in a way doesn't it like oh so yeah. if you wanted to liquidate that you really couldn't because as ceo you'd be doing something probably illegal and also uh well it gets possibly damaging to the company like i don't know that seems weird so you really can't just grab at that money but yeah a you couple can't million of it i guess yeah so it gets a little complicated this is interesting because there's actually a lot of rule there's not a lot of rule i will say that it, there are rules and regulations about this sort of thing. Partly, the taxation is preferable for stock compensation, which is why employee or CEOs want equity compensation and why they get equity compensation. What is the stock awards? That would be what is that like? What does that mean? Like he got eighty three million dollars in stock, or yes. he has stock that eighty three million dollar that drove eighty three million dollars in profits just by holding it essentially. Yeah, no, the first one. So what they do is they'll say, 
they award you. They do this like at technology companies too with most employees nowadays. Um, not all technology, but some do it where they give you equity-based compensation. They'll give you what they call RSUs, restricted stock units. And they award you, part of your compensation is in stock. And so they say, okay, and this is typically how it goes, is that there's a vesting schedule. And they'll award you like, you know, $50,000 when you join the company. For example, I'll tell people this. So when I joined a technology company, I was awarded a stock grant of $35,000, which sounds like a lot. Um, but the stock grant vests over four years. So so if, what does that mean that you got a stock grant? Like what I've never even heard of a... Yeah. So is, what is they, that an, a thing? Yeah. So this is typically how it's done is like you get a grant and the grant will vest over a certain amount of time, typically three or four years. And there's a schedule of vesting. And typically nothing vests there's like a what they call a one-year cliff. So you don't get any of it until you hit a year at the company. Um, and then, so the way it works at my company is you hit a one-year cliff and you get a fourth of that grant. And then every... As as what? As cash? As stock. Or as a stock. So, and the way they do it is so, so that the time that it was awarded to me, they said, we're giving you $35,000 in stock. And so what they do is they divide $35,000 by the share price at the time, which may be if it was $1,000, that means I'm getting 35 shares. And so so essentially they're going to pay why me. Why do they do that? Does that matter? I mean, why, it just seems weird. Well, they, they tell you the amount because it's, it's just more confusing if they told you, like, I'm going to give you 10 shares. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, how much is that? You know, so it's a little it's I think it's preferable to people to tell them like how much money it's going to be. But here's a problem. So they tell you that. it seems like you would divide 35 by four or however many years this is going over. And then they just give you eight point seven five, whatever of thirty five is or. OK, so. Well, that's where we're going. Seven, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, OK, yeah, exactly. So they say, OK, we're going to give you thirty five shares. And then those are going to vest. That's, why do they do, divide it by the price of the share? Because that's how they calculate how many shares they're supposed to give you. Because this is the important point, is that the value changes all the time, right? right? And right. so you may actually end up getting a different value of stock at the time that it actually vests. And so at the time, I was told I was getting $35,000 in shares. And then, you know. It could also go down. Exactly. And so this is what happened. Our stock price plummeted since I joined the company. And so my stocks, I think the $35,000 worth of stocks, however many stocks that was, by the time my first stocks vested or something, I think they were actually worth like $22,000. And so I was actually getting paid a lot less than I was promised because the value of the stock had gone down. And so this happens too with CEO comp and whatnot. And you can think about when the CEO is being promised millions of dollars in stock and the price of the stock is very volatile or goes down a little bit that looks like on paper the ceo is losing millions potentially of dollars so it's you can see why these people would be like really you know up in arms about the stock price and whatnot so anyway and whatever he does is witnessed by the trading world right right So these things vest over time, typically have one year cliff. And then so you don't get any of it until a year and then you get a quarter of it. And then it can be like you'll get, you know, a little more every quarter of the company or a little more every half or a little more every year. Depends on the company. 
And uh, that's how that goes. Now, I say it's highly regulated. That's the other thing I want to talk about. So there are SEC regulations about how much stock leaders can hold. And I don't know all the regulations here. So sometimes leaders at the company, C-suite executives, are actually forced to sell stocks. And so you'll see what they call like forced selling or whatever, where CEOs or C-suite executives who are paid a lot in stock compensation are actually forced to sell some shares. So it gets kind of accusing, and I don't want to, we could dig into that later, but just to say that like, it's not so clear. It's like, oh, you just get the stock and you sell it, do whatever you want. It's like free reign. No, it's not quite like that. To quote George Bush, just send your cash. (laughs) I'll just take the cash. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay, pause. I wanted to jump in to correct a few facts from this first bit. Forbes reported that there is a 380 to 1 spread between CEO and average worker pay among the S&P 500 companies. That article was from 2012, and that statistic was sourced from the AFL-CIO, the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. They currently report that the average S&P 500 CEO makes 324 times what the median employee received. So that number is a little bit lower than I thought. Note that this is the average CEO compared to the median employee, not the lowest paid employee. So it's average CEO to almost average employee. Also, this is an average, and some companies are worse and some are better. So for example, Amazon has the highest CEO to median worker pay ratio in the S&P 500, coming in at 6,474 to 1, meaning that the CEO of Amazon is making 6,474 times what the median worker there makes. So you can check all that out and more at the AFL-CIO website. Additionally, we got our wires crossed about the Fortune 500 and the S&P 500. So the Fortune 500 is an annual list of the 500 largest companies by revenue compiled by Fortune magazine. It includes public and private companies. Meanwhile, the S&P 500 is a stock index of 500 public companies that are selected by the S&P Index Committee, and all of those companies are public. So there's some overlap in those lists in terms of the companies that are on them, but they're not exactly the same. Also, in 2022, Walmart was the top company on the Fortune 500 list with revenue of $572.8 billion. Apple was number three with $365.8 billion. Lastly, I wanted to address the stock regulations. So when employees, including executives, receive stock compensation, those RSUs, companies often do something called sell-to-cover, where they sell the amount of stock needed to cover your income taxes and give you the remainder. This is what I was thinking of when I mentioned the executives being forced to sell stocks. However, to clarify, this is not regulated or enforced by the SEC. Of course, you do have to pay taxes, but you could pay them in other ways, such as via cash, which wouldn't necessarily require you to sell stocks. There are other SEC regulations, and those are about when and how executives can trade, such as insider trading rules, etc., etc., but that's a topic for another discussion. Anyway, with all that cleared up, back to the conversation. Okay, but the other thing I want to say, the last thing I'll say, is I think for people who aren't in the technology industry who might not know about this sort of stuff, equity compensation is a big deal. And this is how, like, when people talk about the technology industry and, like, how it boomed and whatnot and made millionaires, they're really talking about equity compensation because it's such a huge component of what people were making. So if you think about 
Facebook back in, you know, 09 or whatever, when it was founded, or early 2000, I don't remember exactly what year. But, you know, they were awarding people early on with equity, and this would be a lot of money. So I made 36 or whatever, $36,000, $35,000 in equity grant when I joined a technology company. Now, I'm not an engineer. Engineers make a lot more. And so if you're an engineer at this company, you may be getting an equity grant of $150,000, $200,000 investing, $250,000 investing over, you know, four years. Some I've even seen go up like you may get half a million dollars or whatever. So it can be a lot of money. And if you think about the trajectory of tech early on, so this big, huge wave of technology and its rise, especially in the stock price early on, these tech companies were growing at rates of like 50, 100% a year in stock price. And so if you think about, I was just granted you know, $250,000 in equity, and I stayed at the company for five years, and my equity was growing at a rate of 50% or 100% a year. I'm going to cash out like a multimillionaire, you know, so people really did ride this wave up to like joining a tech company and becoming millionaires. And so I think the dynamics have really changed a little bit where you can't do this because tech companies aren't really growing as fast. It's not we're not like at the the beginning of tech anymore. Um, Obviously, tech companies are still growing. Equity compensation is still a big deal, but it's not quite like it used to be. And I think people don't really know like. That's what was going on, you know, like that's why people are so crazy about these fang companies, these Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google uh, companies, because it they literally produce like millionaires and whatnot, just in the general level employees because they were getting so much in stock. So, yeah, equity comp, the CEO stuff. Um, oh, this is interesting. There's large disparities within companies. I, and oh, I will say about what you were saying about the CEO. Thing, yeah. I mean, about the um, equity compensation thing. I would say it's there is something interesting there. Uh, maybe like it has like explanatory power if you were to dig into that. I guess you could call it like incentive structure. Like as you were saying, like, because a lot of those mainstream people, like just like you said, off the street, not off the streets, but like that it's something you could become. Uh, like these engineers or whatever. Sometimes they're, there's like it takes an education, but you gotta like, invest, you not gotta that learn, much. But there's yeah. paths, and a lot of those places yeah. would teach you. Like our grandfather worked at Bell South for like 200 years, and he I don't did he even go to college? I don't even know if he went to college. I don't know, but anyway, he now you know he left that place yeah. being educated by them. I mean, techn- if he did went to college or not, he went to college before cell phones existed. And then he's like working for a tech company down the 50 years later that is streaming services and all sorts of things. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of incentive for, to go along, to get along. If there's anything whack happening, then it's like, there's a, the industry, it's not just the top of the industry that's like, no, full steam ahead, because of course they would be. There's millions to be made. But there's really, there was billions to be made. And for you to come, if you just come along and get along, there's millions for you to be made to like this much larger segment of the population. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, and it, obviously it's different between different companies. But yeah, some definitely some companies, there's a large potential benefit that you can get from, you know, being in the company and rising through the ranks and whatnot. Um, yeah, I was going to say, though, that 
I do want to talk about that point, though, because I think this is really interesting and something people don't think about, but it's been pointed out as like, so you said, you know, these companies will train you and whatnot. And it made me think, well, yes, a lot of them do have, especially the larger companies, have robust training programs, and obviously there's an incentive for that. But another thing these companies do that's kind of little shady, maybe, is that they partner with educational institutions, uh, specifically colleges, and they'll have, you know, partnerships where they sort of get with the, you know, college, and they'll tell them what should be on the curriculum. Like, this is what, and it'll be positioned this way. It'll say, you know, okay, this is what people, this is what we're doing out in the industry. This is what people need to know. This is what you should be teaching them. This is what we're looking for. And applicants in the company, or the, sorry, the university says, okay, great. We want to produce graduates who are really skilled and ready to take jobs in the marketplace. And we want to have good job placement rates from our university. And so we are happy to work with you, company. Please tell us what, you know, people need to know in today's market and whatnot. And, you know, that may be all fine and well, but here's the shady part of it. I think it becomes a question of like, okay, what is the purpose of the education system and who does it serve? Because another way of reading that is that the corporations are outsourcing their training to the university and actually they're causing their employees, future employees, to pay for their own training, which is the paying for the university part. And so you're like, wait a minute, is this actually for the students or is this for the company? Is this a hot take or do other people have a feel? Is that, this is not a hottest take. Out? People have pointed this out, but I think it's a little bit like maybe no, that's I haven't heard a really sophisticated argument about it. I just hear people kind of make this point, but then that's all they really say about it. I mean, that's a sophisticated point, though. I mean, I think because what you said is is what they're doing. You know, it's just like it's never been pointed out. Right. Maybe. Or it hasn't been pointed out. Obviously enough, because they're not only are they outsourcing it, they're outsourcing the training they would otherwise have to pay for, which would cut into profits, but they're either making the employee, the potential factory worker still in school, either they pay for it or taxpayers are paying for it or whatever is funding scholarship programs. Right. And it gets a little, it's a little dicey in the weeds because on some level, I do agree. Like what you should be learning at an educational institution that's public should be things that are a public good. Like, so it should be useful and practical. Like you shouldn't be learning things at a public institution that don't really benefit the public and are not practical or useful. However, I think that practical useful bit how, like, what is practical useful? That's a hard question. And I think typically what's happening, at least what I've seen. Wait, before you get off that first point. Okay, go ahead. Because you're about to make another point that I have another point too. <laughs> so the practical useful thing is like the entry point to the argument that a company would make and has made, like the old railroad companies where they're like, well, you know, yeah, you're subsidizing this, but ultimately because we're going to absorb those guys and then they're going to be productive in society that we're giving back to society in that way that's where we're paying back our dues on that and i do not buy that kind of argument at all especially at that level of like government funding and stuff like if people like start a gofundme if that's what you're looking for and if we agree for real 
then you'll get your funding or whatever. You know, you've got the resources, do an ad campaign, do whatever you need to do. But that's that's bullshit. I, I hate that kind of argument. So but you were making that was just my point on that. But you, that you were about to go into the. Yeah, I'll go into both. Nuances. So the first thing I think, like when I was thinking about like, you know, institutions serving the public, like originally institutions, a lot of them were agricultural. So agriculture was like the biggest industry in the United States at the time. And obviously, like producing food is like maybe the single most important public good. Um, and so a lot of these universities were to study food production, how to make it better and more efficient. And and so that's, you know, I went to Michigan State and it was started as a land grant university. It was agricultural university. And that was really all you could study there. So it's very easy also for me to popular see. popular in the South. Yeah, where yeah. It would be the start started out agricultural. Right. So there's a very clear practical utility that's not tied to any specific agricultural company per se, but it's like, this is an industry where we would like to invest in as a, you know, country and whatnot. So now the nuance, it gets a little interesting because you say, okay, we want things that are practical and useful. That's a premise. And then what does that mean though? And I think what I've seen today is it means we need to teach people the exact sort of things maybe the programs, the applications, the techniques that they will be using in the company. And so what happens is, for example, there's a Master's of Market Research program at Michigan State University. It's one of a few programs. There's not a lot of programs for Master's in Market Research, and it claims to be the world's best or whatever. But one thing I learned about it while I was there is that they have a very tight industry partnership. And so there's a board of people who are CEOs and, you know, high level people from market research companies in the industry. And they get together with the, the university, MSU, Michigan State. And they, you know, tell Michigan State, this is what, you know, we're doing. This is what the skills we need in the employees and whatnot. And so they sort of co-develop the curriculum for the Master's of Market Research program. And you may think, that's great. These people are going to be hired right into these programs and companies. And they are. But what happens is that they end up teaching a lot of these very specific market research methods that are used today and whatnot. So this is like they'll teach you very specific survey designs and very, you know, this is how you run a focus group. This is how you run a conjoint study or this is how you run... Uh, Delphi technique or whatever. So there's all these different methods that they teach you. And so it becomes about a list of methods that you learn and then you can apply in business. Another example would be like business analytics. And so a lot of employers use things like Power BI or Tableau or Excel. And so they want the university to teach this to the students, how to use these applications and these programs. And so they do. And there's lots of classes that have, you know, spurred up and grown up in the universities about how to learn Excel, how to use Power BI, how to use Python, how to use whatever. And so here's my problem. And then I'll pass it back to you. I think what happens is you see this shift in universities where people spend a lot of time learning these very specific techniques or programs or whatever you want to call it. And they don't spend a lot of time learning sort of the foundational elements that would actually really progress the field or industry forward. And so they're not learning about like 
market research at a first level principles way. And maybe they are, but a lot of time, you know, if you're trying to do both, it's like, I think the, the maybe pendulum has shifted toward the learning the applications part because that's what businesses want. And well, you get the, now you get the other stuff, the more fundamental stuff in your master's or PhD, because that's when you get the philosophy of, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah. And so I just think that's a little weird. And one, I think it's, it's more lucrative or relevant in the short term, like to learn that application or whatever, because it helps you get that job like today, right when you graduate. But in the long term, it's like what's really going to serve you well is learning the fundamentals and then how to apply them to different things. Because the technology, the techniques are going to change, you know, like the way we do technology today is going to be different in 5, 10, 50 years. Like just like the way we did agriculture is different than how we did it 50 years ago. Um, But if someone had only taught you how we did it 50 years ago and not taught you like, hey, these are, you know, this is what agriculture is about. These are the fundamental challenges of agriculture. These are like the principles that it's built on and how it works. Um, And then sort of like identified opportunities and avenues for you to further our knowledge and think about the problems. That's very different than being like, here's how you use and implement the irrigation systems we have today. You know, it's very different. Anyway, that was a long tirade, but I do find that is an interesting point. What are your thoughts? Enough from me. Number one, I don't have, it's the one that I want to be the most interesting, but it doesn't have as much, it's not as obvious. I mean, to me it is, I'm going to say they're all, the, all these things are true, my point one, two, and three, but people may, you probably, may disagree <laughs> with this reality but it's just a way that my brain works and how it takes too much talking to explain. I've discovered mostly through this podcast to get to this kind of a logical operating. And it has to do partially with experience, I think. So it's like one of those things that's like, it maybe it's too difficult to explain to somebody unless the person, like you can explain how to weld, but until you start welding, you got to practice. Like it takes some skill, you know, you just got to do it. There's, there's nothing I can tell you that's really going to make you get there. But point number one is regarding the companies, this idea of the company's outsourcing, whatever. Their training. Their training, yeah, essentially. And getting the employees did, and to did pay we make, for it. I want to. I hope that we've made it clear how that's happening because we're gonna ta- we're talking about it a lot, and it may be a little bit complicated. But so I'm just gonna recap. Mm-hmm. Companies are outsourcing their training in the sense that. Let me go through an example. Actually, I think I came up with an example while we were talking, just kind of thinking about trying to get through the logic of it. Yeah. Like it makes sense. So like, let's say I'm a company and I'm like. We started using this thing. Maybe it's software. Maybe it's something like some management software to manage projects. We're using this. You know, we use it all the time. It's become integral in our company. It's all we do. We're Coca Cola. There's a lot of things like this, like Asana is one or Jira, or there's lots of project management software. So I'm Coca Cola. I have this thing. I'm a big, so I've made a big purchase of this software. That in itself is big because other companies will adopt this if Coca-Cola has adopted it, you know? So this is a growing product. Other companies are buying the software. Mm. It's not just one company, you know? It's actually kind of within the industry to some extent, whatever industry that is, manufacturing of food and beverage. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So they go, look, UGA or wherever, whoever Coca-Cola is hiring out of, 
we need people to do this stuff. And the people that we're trying to hire from you guys, they don't know this stuff. And then MSU or MSU, UGA goes, okay, yeah, we'll teach that stuff then. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That way they know it. It seems benign. Right. In a way. Exactly. Okay. So point, so that's okay. I'm making a point here. So the subsidy comes in where MSU is teaching something that first of all, the company could teach when they get there. Right. Most people go on a grant or a scholarship or they pay for it themselves. I did a little bit of both personally. Right. And most people probably do a little bit of both. And we should make the point too, that there's a lot of diversity in companies. So it, this, this, what we're saying, like this example, is highly contingent on which companies are talking to the university. Because Coca-Cola doesn't use the same as Pepsi versus right. you know, Georgia Power. But however, if UGA is in this partnership now with Coca-Cola saying, yeah, we'll teach them what you need them to know to use your software, they might then help Siemens or who, there's some other big companies you know, around here. You go, okay, well... We'll start working with them too. They have, okay, yeah, we're just going to teach this software suite, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Now Pepsi might be trying to draw from UGA, even though they're not down here in Georgia. Georgia now maybe gets a reputation. Now that benefit to to UGA and that relationship is way more than just, yeah, that makes sense. We should teach them what they want to know. Now it's like, ooh, we have a lot of demand for our students. We can charge more for tuition. We can expand. Mm. We need more students. We need to pull market for the, you know, what now it's really actually become a benefit to us to actually teach this because we've created really marketable. Now, in a sense, this is just kind of competition and it, and it does make a little sense, but really it's competition facilitated through what turns out to be backroom dealing, first of all. But ultimately, I'm just recapping so I can make my three points that that's how this is being outsourced. Your training for what to do in these companies is being outsourced and then it's being paid for by taxpayers. They kind of become feeder schools. Right. And that does happen. Certain yeah, universities. Law schools are huge. Like certain law yeah. schools, everybody knows the name of for a reason. Yeah. And certain because companies where you recruit go. from certain schools because those schools teach the things they really value or whatnot. But anyway, so my points here, now yeah, we've yeah. established this kind of odd situation. My first point, which I like the most and is difficult, will be the most contentious for you probably is, so maybe we'll come back to it, is that in a way that is, could be for me construed as corporations essentially directing the economy in the direction that they want it to go. Because we started out by talking about, well, at one point it might've been farming and another point it was this, another point it was that, you know, throughout throughout time, depending upon the state of the economy. But once these relationships are established, well, what is what is MSU teaching? MSU is teaching what the CEOs of these companies said they need to be teaching in order to get hired. That's what you're learning. You only are there for so much time. What are you forgoing to learn this software or this technique or this particular thing? You're basically being trained for the machine to go into one of these pre-established industries. And it, it even may come across, I think, as pragmatic. Like, why wouldn't you do that, though? Like, it's a little bit of intervention, but it's intervention that ends up being good for all the parties. The school benefits, the students benefit, the corporations benefit. Who's losing out here? Mm -hmm. 
I'm saying who's losing out here is the natural evolution of what's best for mankind because essentially this is another this could be described as the elite 0.0000001% of power brokers of tycoons of whatever you want to call them influence influential people truly inf not influencers that have a lot of followers billionaires millionaires people that are making 50 million dollars a year 50 million dollars every 2 years 50 million dollars in a lifetime those people 50 million dollars in a lifetime i mean that's probably doable but i mean you know what i'm saying like sure people these who are mobilize or can mobilize a lot of resources and whatnot. powerful people yeah and other people yeah. into a certain direct like if they say this company's going to do this i mean a whole company could shift direction and whatnot yeah and so if we're doing that, if that relationship exists between the universities and the corporations, then essentially corporations are driving much of the education and they're driving the direction of the economy as a whole and of culture and of all of that. That Because at a certain point, all the industries do amalgamate into something approximating what could be construed as a culture and it may and it looks to us who are experiencing it in a short lifetime as just some emergent phenomenon this cultural like oh it's just how we where we are in history hmm. but it may it could be many other ways theoretically it could be it could be otherwise mm -hmm. so and it will be otherwise in not too distant a future as turmoil ensues whatever you know things shift catastrophes do happen catastrophic change and motion does occur as does the uniformitarian model of slow change they both can exist at the same time although academia <laughs> academia academia whatever you want they will not tell you that both of those things can sure, exist yeah, apparently. Yeah. it's like a lesson it's this or that so point number one is that this is to me probably a, a recognized method essentially of directing Bare minimum future profits, culture, and economy creating. Interesting. Well, yeah, I guess my thoughts on that are I could see it that way. If you think about it in the aggregate, I don't know how directed it is. One, like how I don't think these Very. corporations all get together and think about it quite like this or whatever. I think it's sort of like a, everybody's acting in their own kind of selfish best interests, and maybe we end up in a situation that looks a little like this. But then I think, too, it's not, it's not all or nothing. So it's like, I think you want a, a healthy partnership between universities and industry because it's like industry is, is how the things that you learn at university are going to be actualized. Like you're going to create businesses and you're going to work at a business. And so you want a partnership, but I think it's like you don't want it to be too heavy where the industries are completely or, you know, more than they ought deciding what the university is teaching. And I think the cost there is that the society would be less innovative and value creating, um, sort of like too optimized, like we're too optimized for the way businesses exist today or something. We're, we don't teach people how to think fundamentally and in new ways and, and how to create new value and new companies and better things and better products. Okay, so let me make my second... And third point, because you're okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. getting there before I am. So number two is a kind of still stemming off of the similar, you could use the same example. Company says, we need the people to know this stuff. So f number one, by the way, was like 
con- whatever we'll call it the control conspiracy and control <laughs> point. Number two is maybe more of the pragmatic understanding of it. And like you said, maybe it just runs away based on vice. Mm-hmm. Self-interest, maybe, yeah. Self-interest. Short-term mm-hmm. thinking, maybe. I consider some people to have a malicious intent that that could be a vice, but it's a little less listed. But anyways. Well, and maybe you two, could say that's a, the short-term thinking is a vice, you know, like these people should really be. Well, I think it's, a, it's always a combination. If you, if you say, well, sometimes it just happens because people just do what they need to do to like what everyone else is doing. It's like, yes, it's true, but there's also going to be people out there that are like, I understand this system. I mean, if you're smart enough, if your IQ is high enough and you embark on those types of behaviors, at a certain point, your brain, because you're a thinking person, is going to figure out kind of the... How to scam the system. Complexities or of what you're doing or the, the realities of, of different vantage points on perspective of what you're actually engaging in. Because I do mm-hmm, it and mm-hmm. I'm... I consider myself smart enough to to be like to when I divvy up dinner on the two plates for dinner. A lot of times I'll tell Kim to choose; she'll tell me to choose, and I tell her to choose because I don't know what's motivating my choice, but I know something is, and I don't know if I'm always taking the better dish. You know, sometimes we have our preferences. I like a little more of this sauce; she doesn't like the sauce, or whatever. But but you could just take just the one even, you want, which is what I probably do, but I don't know. Or do I take? Am I taking the one I don't want? But it fucks with me a little bit in the head. So my point being that as a thinking person, you go, hey, I'm just making dinner, but like on a certain level, like I hope I'm being generous, you know? Mm, yeah, there's always Some like people, a deeper meaning, So you, maybe. your brain, certain types of thinkers engaged in these behaviors will know what they're doing on a level that probably makes them culpable. It's like putting a special needs person on trial versus someone who's fully coherent. Like there's a difference. Or a genius or whatever, a savant-like person, yeah. Yeah, or some whatever. Anyways, yeah, so yeah. point number okay. two is just we need this thing. Okay, yeah, we'll teach it. But that turns to me and in, back into the idea that it's it definitely is a subsidy that is unjust because I don't buy the argument that ultimately this practice leads to like the benefit for society. Because like I said earlier, who's losing in this? We get what we need. I'm like, well, who's losing? I have some answers. They sound subjective, but like the natural evolution of society, the creativity of individuals, the experience of the college experience of what it's supposed to be when we thought critically and read the classics and et cetera, et cetera. There was always, of course, going to be industry manipulation probably from the time of its inception. But I'm saying there was a time in which what was important was an education because it was for the elites probably originally anyways, if you think about how that kind of stuff tends to play out. And so there's some leisure. Well, what are we... I, they're already, they don't need to learn how to make more money or like how to run the business that or the empire they've been born into a hundred times over. Mm. They are going to understand philosophy or whatever, you know, things of that nature, the less immediate things that, because I, you yeah. also, your parents didn't go to school. Our grandparents didn't go to school to farm. That's just what they did. They are, they didn't need to go to school for that. You know what I mean? Right. So that was, there's probably always been a, a level of it that was industry dr- driven. And I'm saying that the definitely point number two being that the, it definitely is a subsidy and it's unjust because you're just outsourcing your training and you should be teaching because it leads directly to my third point, which is that 
oh, what is school? What is education? It's useless. Because you're already, it's already, all we're doing there now is is industry training in certain regards. Mm. So why don't you just let these ridiculously profitable, absurdly rich corporations train their own employees? Because they can, they're far more well-funded to do it. They're probably paying for it under the table halfway anyways. So let's just stop this scam or whatever, because it's not as simple as just their relationship. Also think about the amount of student debt that burdens Americans. It's incredible. And the, mm-hmm. we all know the reason education is expensive is exactly because it is subsidized. Do you mean in this, in some other way, or this sort of way, this like tacit cooperation with companies, their marketability and like... Well, I, but I shouldn't have said subsidized. I mean, it's welfare. You got to explain that one. Okay, maybe everyone doesn't understand that. Everyone does understand how come going to the hospital is so expensive because you literally can pay, you'll get a, a bill and you're like, this is incredible. I will never be able to pay this. And then you go, they go, well, don't you have insurance? You say no. They go, oh, hang on. And they give you a different bill with different numbers for the exact same procedures because they can bill the insurance company higher. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it drives up the cost of everything in the medical industry, prescriptions, everything, because everything is supposedly kind of like, well, we can charge whatever we want or what they would say, whatever we need, but it's whatever they want because it's going to be, the burden is not on the consumer. The cost is already paid is one way of thinking about it. But ultimately, that that is what drives up the price of these things. That's why Tylenol is $55 a tablet. At the hospital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like you're making an argument against subsidization or market intervention. Like the this is like common economic theory, like why you don't want to put price caps or subsidies in different markets because you won't reach the efficient. Yeah, because I'm under the impression that this is the rate. type of argumentation that leads us to a publicly funded education system. You go to school to get educated, to go work in the, in the factory or in the industry, whatever. This is a public good, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So, of course, what, we don't care if we call it corporate training or education, university. What's it matter? Because what we're our argument is that we're going to pay for it, and we're paying for it because it's does it goes into the system of like the cycle of supposed public benefit. But ultimately, what that's really done is made it completely unaffordable for 90% of the people cuz there's that moral hazard there where the government or the university is like well the government's subsidizing it so we can charge whatever we want because the government's going to pay for it or whatever yeah because it, the bills level. are getting paid yeah we and artificial artificially high demand that everybody has to go to college and many more people can so the demand is actualized and it drives the price up mm mm-hmm. mhm Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's a conundrum because yeah, it's a real conundrum. A lot of people, because there's a whole bunch of welfare in this in the, in the system, but there's also a whole bunch of debt because the welfare is half-assed anyways. You know what I mean? Or whatever my experience was weird and legal and had to do with like dates and stuff and my my age and how long it had been since I had done this or that other thing. You know, like you mean it's not full scholarships; it's like only partially and whatnot. Yeah, and all the other stuff like living expenses for four years in a ridiculously expensive part of town because it's right next to the university where the demand is high. I mean, it's all yeah, so this yeah. it does have actual negative consequences. And that's my second point is that 
Well, I don't want to get too far. Just, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Well, it's only three points. Like, so it definitely is a subsidy. Mm-hmm. They're outsourcing this 100%. They ought to probably not be doing that. Reserve education for what it's good for. Level the playing field because the guy that works down the road at some non-Fortune 500 company that isn't implementing all of these bizarre high-tech ways of doing business doesn't even need that, but he has to hire people who are being funneled through it. Right, right. Or or not because they're, they want too much money, so he has to get someone off the street, but then he has to pay his own training mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not a good system. That's point number two, and so it leads to the point number three, which is that school is therefore in its current state almost almost useless. It's only useful within the system, the licensing system, and everything that's been established. I mean, you can't cut hair if you don't have a license, so you have to get a license. To get a license, you got to go to cosmetology. You know what I mean? It's like hello, like the it's it's touched everything now. Yeah. It's the technological society has arrived. Wow, there's a lot of things here. Gosh. Um, well, so one thing I don't want to get too far into the economics of education because I think it's actually very complicated and nuanced thinking about like the subsidies. And to that point, I understand your point. There's a subsidy. It's almost like we're subsidizing companies. The government is supporting public education. But if the public education is completely being molded by or molded in a large way by companies, then that's almost like a subsidy to those companies. Like we're sort of paying for their training. We're subsidizing their training. So I understand that. The other way though, where you're just like there, I think there's also a different subsidy and just the direct, like we're subsidizing, subsidizing education. I think that's a more tenuous problem because it's like, how do you make it affordable and accessible to the most people? But how do you not drive up the price by subsidizing it? But the, in, the well, that's the thing that we can't even think outside that box anymore because the, bo- the what we may conclude is we don't need everybody going to school. Maybe it is not a beginning of life thing and maybe it's an end of life thing. Maybe you go learn about X, Y, or Z philosophy of language acquisition when you're 50, not when you're 18. Because a lot of people... I went to school, you went to school, you know what people say, what's your degree? I don't know, I changed it six times already. Why are you here? I gotta gotta get a degree to get a job. Right, right. It's like, yeah, because there's some, because it's true, but it's part of a stupid system that's like only, like, you know, companies, sure, they're just participating in it because like that's what everybody else does and you can like weed people out, whatever. Right. But it's dumb. It literally like it's like that doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't even make sense. No, I totally agree with you. I think it becomes a licensing organization or body or system. The system of, you know, universities becomes a licensing system. For my my degrees are perfect examples. Philosophy. What does a philosopher do? Nothing. They philosophize. They serve coffee at Starbucks. I don't know what they do. They build wood sheds and cut wood and make mushrooms. Now, the other degree, psychology, what do I do with the psychology degree? Well, it's a bachelor's degree, so nothing, because you don't get a license based on a bachelor's degree. You have to get the master's degree, even more of a scam. <laughs> so it's like, there's these two things here. You, I mean, it's just, you you see the incentive. It's like, you, well, you don't get the ticket yet. For which one? The one that has an industry and makes money. Sure. Oh, that's interesting. How how random and by chance that is that there's absolutely nothing associated with 
the level of my degree in philosophy, but the level of degree in psychology is set at a limit that costs double. And they even have one that costs triple if you want the PhD. And guess what? There's a license reserved for those too. There's one at every fucking, excuse me, there's one at every level, you know? And it's like, how interesting. Well, yeah, in the, I don't want to get... the non-industry mechanism or non-industry education, educational, you can be respected probably at any level as long as you're able to do the work, whatever. If it's academic, right. like some cultural thing. Well, if you can write things that get published, then you can write things that get published. What do you get with the degree? Uh, a bump in the line. You get the fast pass maybe in a lot of cases. People will look at it quicker, but yeah, that's what I I think there's a lot of complexity there too. It's like, I, cause I think there's some benefit to licensing people. Like you don't want just anybody, like you don't want just anybody being a doctor or a surgeon, you know, giving you surgery. However, it's like not clear when you want that versus other things. It's like, uh, if people can do the work, like why do they need to have a license? You know, if like we can just look at their output or performance in something and be like look clearly they can 100%. do this 100 percent. i mean you're literally starting trying to start a technology company yourself and then i go okay so let's just imagine that this is true because it could be very easily i know rustin i worked with rustin i could be the guy but it's not me so i won't use that but let's say i worked with one other guy and i'm like he works in this tech company he hates it there and you'd be like well how can he help? Like, what, what does that mean? You know, can I, how can I use him? Did he go to school? Does he, what does he know? You know, I go, well, no, he didn't. But when he was like 16, which is my, basically my story with Rustin, when he was like just a kid, Rustin was like, here, I'll come, I'll teach you what we do. And you, I, I was like certified in like Cisco, uh, networking technology, Astaros networking technology, and Terraces networking technology, switches, servers, routers, ne- you know, fiber networks, all that stuff. And I could have stayed in the industry. And by now I could be probably anything. And maybe you go back to school to learn some kind of technical thing. Maybe not. Cause really they'll teach you, you know, you just hang out with the engineers, which is kind of what I did. And then also the, all these companies, even though I worked for one company, all these companies that we sold gave us training programs to know how to sell their stuff, you know? So you basically learn it all. You have to understand it because to be able to sell it. Right, so you right. go talk to engineers and sell things to engineers. You have to kind of know what you're saying. You know what I mean? So I could say, yeah, that's what this guy did, but he never went to school. He doesn't have any like engineering degree or coding degree, but I, I do have a friend that's about to graduate. He's never worked before, but he did get a degree in Java. He learned Java. You know, you go, well, what's, who are you going to choose? It's like, I mean, nine times out of 10, you're like, I'll take the guy that's generating $150 worth of revenue. I mean, $150,000 worth of revenue a year for that company because he's already doing it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. Why you just, why would you re- really, ultimately, why would you? It's like a, it's just a system. You know, it's like if you don't know that guy and you don't know where to find him, then maybe you could go to the university, but then it becomes like a waiting line. You know what I mean? It's just a weird, it really did, it does start to look like that meat grinder, you know, like like just little items coming out the end of an assembly line, just workers, boom, 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 all with a little stamp on their shirt. Oh, bachelor's in psychology. Oh, that, that just makes a big circle and goes right back into the university again until you get your master's. But, you know, this, okay, this one keeps going, you know, it's like, that's just, it's the visual is palpable at that point. Yeah. Because I just don't know what we're doing. 
I told you about that company that does the opposite. That it's called Praxis. I don't know if it even exists anymore, mm-hmm. but they had a lot of success when they started out, and it was they literally just took youngsters, teenagers, young twenties, thirties, and said, "Look, we're going to teach you business, and we have a couple partnerships with these different. It's very similar, but it's private, and there's no subsidy." So it makes a lot more sense. These companies pay this these guys, train these people. These are what the kind of people we need. They send them out once they've gotten their six weeks of training or whatever. They get to be an intern, and 99% of the time, they're hired on at a non-entry-level paying position right, right. that okay. you would that is comparable with... Uh, so it's a, it's like a proof of concept that like you yeah. actually don't need the school for it. That's for sure. But do these companies need subsidies for it? Maybe, but there's your subsidy. They those kids paid for it themselves, and all you had to do is say, "Hey, I promise, if the program works, then we'll then we'll just give you the money. Like we'll hire you, so you'll get your your due." Yeah. And then everybody gets to say the same things. Oh, we helped society. We little you know we went into the made our difference and gave back and all of that. All the relationship is the same except for it's decoupled from we the people like the government like i don't you know it's like well (laughs) that's the fundamental question i think we can return to is like what is the university for or just what is the university what is the public institution the public educational institution what is its purpose and i think if you don't really know or you're not clear it's easy for the purpose to be co-opted by organizations who would like to you know subsidize your training and get in with the organization and get people and from it and, you know, co-op the curriculum and whatnot. And that sounds kind of coercive, but I just, obviously there's some incentive there. It also sounds unavoidable in a sense. Right. Like how do you, have, how really do you prevent that from happening? But maybe the way that it, it corrects is that you end up with something like Praxis caught on and more and more of those types of things competed with the university. Then maybe the university at that point could say, shit, this isn't working out for us anymore. Really what we need to do is go back to our roots and be a university. Right, and I think there's a push in that direction kind of recently. I think you're seeing more people being like, look, we don't need to have these college-educated people working at the company. We just need people who can do the job, and they can learn how to do the job at a boot camp. They can learn how to do the job at another experience on their own time. They can learn, you know, whatever. It's like, we need to stop, you know, privileging people with these licenses. Yeah, it's too mono- it's like it's too monopolized because yeah. it's married to the government, I think, because the government is a monopoly. Uh, if nothing else it's a monopoly on violence. So, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. government has married itself to this and it creates kind of like a singular point because it's got all the mechanisms. You know, it's got the funding, it's got every it's got taps into all the the tax money. So, that's just you shouldn't put the, you should not marry things to government if you want them to go well. Yeah. Well, that's yeah, free market principle maybe. Maybe, yeah. I mean, on a certain level, there's other things to think about when it comes to monopolies, but those are actually in the the marketplace whereas the government is like just injecting itself into the marketplace. And it's like, "Hey, get out of here. You don't know what you're doing, you know." Yeah. Well, to the purpose point, it's sort of like I don't think these universities have a strong sense of purpose or mission. And maybe they feel like they do, but it doesn't seem apparent to me because otherwise it's like, so the university comes and says, hey, we'd like to you know, teach, we'd like you to teach this to the students. What does the university say? And I feel like they have to be, you know, they have to lean on some principles and evaluate like, okay, well, should we do that or should we not do that? How are we going to make that decision? And it's like, well, you have to look at what's the purpose of this institution? Is that in alignment with what we're supposed to be doing? And I think that that 
is a very vague process and well, maybe not I happening think, at all. I think it's going to take courageous individuals, yeah. basically. Like, it's going to need that, For sure. first of all, because... Because like we were like the my example of the philosophy versus psychology, my experience in philosophy was much, much more diverse feeling. I'm not gonna dog any of it. Okay. Like that's the other the other thing to say is that to imagine an alternative isn't as tr- like tragic and terrifying as you might imagine as, as you might think. In one way, based on degree, you might want to say that universities have completely abandoned their purpose. But they haven't really. By degree, it's tremendous. It's almost complete. But in the sense that there's opportunity to actually learn there, there is. I, being this like kind of basically anarchistic system hater, I really, really loved going to UGA. And honestly, it was expensive and I didn't, I couldn't afford it, but I could see myself going back again if I could replicate my experience. I didn't have the, young kid college experience. I had the old kid college experience and I loved the solitude of it, the quietness of it, the campus, the peace and serenity in the campus, the resources, the libraries, the people that were all around, uh, literally behind the iron gates, you know, that were all thinking and interested in your interest in things on a deep level. Mm-hmm. And you can set, you pay all this money, and you, but you get to set aside all this time to like explore. And there are things that you encounter that are there to explore, and there are things there that they neglect because we don't have time to teach you Excel if we teach you that, or because that's not where the industry is right now. There was a lot more of that in the psychology department, the licensing, the the track that leads to a technical license at some point versus the philosophy which was very diverse and there was a lot of i guess i want to say like freedom to think and explore whatever it is you're thinking and exploring on i mean it's a huge you could do literally the philosophy of anything mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. you know and nobody was like well that's stupid you know there were some people like i said it's diverse there were some that were pushing a narrative there were some that were strict to the the teaching whatever we're teaching something here. You have to know this stuff. I don't care if you're into theology. This is not a theology class. This is a symbolic logic class. We have to know how to do symbolic logic. There's a benefit. So I think my one of my points is that with all that being said, the shift back to the roots is not that scary and dangerous. It's just like get out from under, because someone who's controlling you, like so if these industries have some kind of hold over it, you can't put that, that hold can't be too, too tight. Well, maybe you know? a way to say it is if you lack a purpose or you lack conviction, you will easily be taken over by other people who have conviction and purpose. And so I think that that's the sort of phenomenon you see over and over in society. It's like, and you'll be nudged by the controllers right. like, hey, well, we do this. Uh, we don't, we're not, uh, we don't really publish in that topic because it's kind of canceled or it's not really mainstream anymore. You know, right, it's kind of right. a weird, it's like it, that's the one that's the push that is clearly controlled by industry is that it's not mainstream. What, what does that mean? It's like not out there. It's not what we're doing in the world and society and the economy. It's like, I'm saying you're pushing out the one thing that actually has the potential to collapse the whole system there. If anything, you need to hold on to 
that thing where in the universities where you can go to explore that thing that isn't all over the place to think mm -hmm. deeply mm -hmm. and to find alternatives and to see what others have said and have a place to do an experiment and figure out if what others have said is true or not. That's what science is. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, it's twofold. It's like, let's direct, but in order to direct, let's suppress because we have to nudge you, kind of keep you on between the lines, on the path. That's the exact opposite of what I think universities should be doing in many regards. But each individual situation is going to be different still like in psychology i had a professor keith campbell shout out keith campbell <laughs> um he, Hope he listens to this <laughs> yes exactly but i felt like he could have been and he may have been and he may have tried i don't know what went on behind the scenes but i know there was politics and all sorts of things but he was like a department head of psychology at some point mm -hmm. and then at some point he wasn't but I always got the vibe from him, even though I don't even know if I would have agreed if he would have like laid it out for me, like, this is what needs to happen. I might have been like, I don't think so. I feel like you're still kind of wrong. But whatever, he se he was kind of against the grain and seemed like the kind of guy that should have been, could have been one of those courageous people. Like, the king has to go to battle, mm. you know, psychologically. I mean, yes, virtue. he has to be driven by the virtue of it. Mm-hmm. But part of the virtue may be the psychology behind it. Go, You may just realize these men will all die and we will lose everything if I don't ride in at the front flinging this sword around, probably going to get shot in the head. Yeah. Isn't that Plato or Socrates or someone who is like the price that good men pay for not following their convictions is to be ruled by evil men or something? I have heard that. Something along those lines. I have no idea who that is. Yeah. But it's something like the principle of like, if you don't act in a courageous way and stand up for what you believe in, then it's easy to see how other people with nefarious intent who do want to domineer and control people will take over. Yeah. And there's a tendency toward that, especially, you know, the university is one way in which it plays out. I think you see it play out in politics too. But um, yeah, and I think it's particularly negative in in uh, academia because this is supposed to be the institution that stands for, you know, the spirit of enlightenment. You know, it's like the institution that was birthed during the enlightenment. It's like we established universities, which were supposed to be this, you know, marriage of liberal and conservatism. You know, it's like, how do we conserve our societies and institutions, but progress uh, and, you know, promote human flourishing and the advancement of knowledge. And it's a place to have those, tumultuous, difficult conversations right, right. outside of the actual battle ring which yeah. of, of, rea of the actual world of politics, of culture, of everyday life. Let us go into the ivory tower and let us talk about this and, you know, may the best argument win. Let's, let us devise these systems, the scientific method, logic, all of these things, and let us adhere to these in our discussions, in our nonviolent horn-rimmed glasses haven't combed my hair in weeks discussions where we're doing something earnest and that is this the discovery of truth or whatever it may be yeah well with that yeah universities you know i think we got some work Ooh, to do i think yeah. <laughs> we're pushing in the right direction i think there's some positive change happening um 
you know, more people are realizing, hey, we don't, you don't need that degree. What did you really learn there? We need people who can do the work and we don't, maybe that's not the purpose of university is to get you the license for the job. Maybe the purpose of university should be something else. And I think it's like, yeah, what is that purpose? What should universities be about? And I think, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a difficult question. We should really put some thought into that and universities should really, yeah, I think have a, a strong sense of purpose because, Otherwise, you know, you get co-opted by other institutions who want to make your purpose their purpose. Stay cool, be cool, and like have courage and like say something, like see something, say something. No, I'm just kidding. I'm like the most <laughs> anti-follower, but I'm like, just be like decent, be courageous. Be courageous. Yeah.